in pop culture, there's a definite fascination with the concept of what it means to be wild. Think about classic songs like Born to be Wild by Steppenwolf or Wild Child by The Doors. Or on the edgier side, there was Lou Reed's 1964 hit Take a Walk on the Wild Side. Wild's a big movie theme as well. Remember the 2007 movie Wild with Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dern? Or how about Wild Wild West from 1999 or Will Smith's rap video about it? Even Disney had 2006 hit The Wild. So what about plants? What about the crops that feed us? Have you ever thought about their wild side? Actually, there's a very serious reason that our food crops may need a way to get in touch with their wild roots, as it were. That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Pop Agriculture. This is Pop Agriculture, the podcast that blends pop culture with agriculture to tell the stories of the plants, processes, and people who have shaped modern crop production. A true farm-to-table connection that puts food into perspective with your passionate plant scientist host, Steve Savage. Human interest in the wild goes well beyond rock songs and adventure movies. Even as the comfortable beneficiaries of modern civilization, we can still have a serious desire to connect with the wild in the sense of the wilderness that still remains in the world. As the transcendentalist Henry David Thoreau put it in the 19th century, in wilderness is the preservation of the world. Or Ken Burns produced a PBS documentary on our national park system that was aptly titled America's Best Idea. Keeping in touch with the wild is a good idea for human society. For the crops that feed us, there's sometimes a very practical need to connect with their wild side. Now, as humans who tend these crops, we need to help our cultivated plant species tap into the wealth of genetic diversity that nature provides. The crops that we now grow were domesticated, usually long ago, from some wild plant. In many cases, it's hard to even recognize the wild ancestor of a crop because we've been selecting and are breeding that species to suit our own purposes for a very long time. In his book, Botany of Desire, author Michael Pollan frames this relationship in the opposite sense, that certain plant species effectively enlisted humans to protect them and distribute them around the world. So whether we enlisted the plants or the plants enlisted us, the relationship involves a sort of complicated love-hate thing when it comes to genetic diversity. There are times when it's really desirable to be able to access the genetic diversity that might exist among the wild ancestors of a crop. However, much of the time, what we want for the farming of the crop is to work with a very narrow subset of those genetics and essentially turn off the mechanisms for genetic change. It's as if we want to do a freeze frame. Now, this isn't some new phenomenon of industrial modern agriculture. Thousands of years ago, farmers learned that if you found a grapevine or an olive tree or some other tree or vine that gave you good fruit, you could generate multiple copies of that desirable specimen by taking cuttings to root or by grafting buds or shoots on some existing root system. This means that ancient farmers effectively learned to clone plants to avoid the whole genetic scrambling step that happens with pollination and seed development. It sounds creepy if I call it cloning, but it isn't as unnatural as it sounds. 
Unlike most animals, plants in nature often reproduce through clones. Wild banana trees generally reproduce by making pups or sons that sprout around the base of the mother plant. They're genetically identical to mom. That means of reproduction is actually handy for human banana farmers because we happen to prefer bananas that don't have big, hard, black seeds in the fruit. No seeds, no problem, because we can simply clone the good, seedless, eating bananas that we love. Now, potato plants will occasionally make above-ground fruit with seeds, but they normally reproduce in nature the way we reproduce them in agriculture, through sprouts that come from their below-ground tubers. So potatoes are also an easy crop to clone using the fully natural mechanism. But even for plants that generally reproduce by cloning themselves, they usually hedge their bets by having a way to make seeds and thus generate some genetic diversity from time to time. That way they have a sort of backup strategy to provide diversity that can help them adapt to a changing environment, to new pests, or some other evolutionary challenge. Well, we humans employ a similar sort of periodic genetic diversity strategy. We have ways to routinely propagate our crops that have limited or no genetic change. This isn't just about cutting and budding perennial plants. We also have diversity-limiting methods for crops grown from seed. Think about the heirloom tomato varieties that are popular with gardeners. Now, in that case, plant breeders backcrossed a desired tomato over and over again until it would breed true, is the term they use. That means that the seeds from such a tomato will grow out to be exactly the same kind of tomato. And that's great for allowing a gardener to save seed, but it means that the natural mixing-matching of crop pollination is, has been effectively avoided. Nature uses flowering and seed production to generate genetic diversity. With heirloom varieties, we've effectively just said no to genetic change. Well, hybrid crops represent a sort of intermediate approach. Inbred lines are developed, and they reproduce to make seeds that are the same every generation, like an heirloom. But then the plant breeders mix and match the different inbred lines and find combinations of those that make particularly high-yielding hybrids or hybrids with other benefits. Then they can reliably make more of that specific hybrid seed every year by combining the same two inbred lines. Now, these prized cultivars, hybrids, inbreds, or varieties are usually very different from their wild relatives or ancestors because they represent some very special combination of genes that makes them desirable in terms of growth, nutrition, flavor, color, size, host of other characteristics. There are very few cases where the wild version of that plant is all that desirable for us as a crop. There are many cases where the wild ancestors are inedible or even toxic for us. However, there are times when it would be great to be able to tap back in to the greater pool of genetic diversity that's found among the natural relatives of our crops. Those relatives might have some resistance to an important pest of the crop, or they might be better able to handle environmental stresses like heat or drought or salinity. Well, now we have ways to manage pests with fungicides and insecticides, but the most Robust and sustainable approach is where you use those tools in combination with some genetic resistance, and then the two approaches together help prevent the pest from developing resistance to either of the tools. 
Now, for some crops, there are still diverse wild communities of the ancestral species. For other crops, there are very intentional collections of seeds or plants that are maintained by humans. So the diversity pools are important, but it can be a major challenge to get some specific good gene or trait moved from one of those wild relatives without messing up that complex genetic background that it takes to make a good crop. A normal cross-pollination step between the wild and domestic plant ends up mixing all sorts of different characteristics, and some of those can come out pretty undesirable. Now, with an annual crop that goes from seed to harvest every year, it's possible to conduct many generations of backcrossing and kind of work back to restoring the desirable features of the crop and actually incorporating only one or a few of these new genes. But for crops that take several years to go from seed to fruit, this sort of backcrossing step could easily take decades. And even after all of that, you could still end up with some undesirable baggage from the reconnection with the crop's wild side. So for many crops, it just hasn't been practical to tap back into natural genetic diversity. Take wine grapes, for instance. The famous European varieties that are now grown all around the world are picked based on tradition and legitimately on the quality that's associated with them. We're still almost only using very old cultivars. Think Cabernet Sauvignon or Chardonnay. Those are hundreds of years old. Growing these old varieties has been possible because of crop protection tools like fungicides and insecticides that allow grape growers to deal with old and even new pests that come along to afflict those varieties. Now, out there in nature, there are some resources of grape genetic diversity. There are wild species of grapes, particularly in North America, and they have some very cool resistance genes that could be very, very helpful. Now, actually, as humans, we have tapped into that source of genetic diversity for more than 100 years, but only to be able to deal with the grape pests that attack underground. All around the world today, we grow those old European varieties of the species Vitis vinifera, but since the 1800s, most of those have been grafted onto rootstocks that are actually the different grape species from North America. This means of tapping into natural genetic diversity for root issues isn't limited to grapes. It's the normal way for most tree fruits, nuts, and actually even things like tomatoes and peppers that are grown on rootstocks. These are, I guess, what you could call real frankenfoods. There are also resistance genes in wild grapes that would make an excellent complement to those applied crop protection tools for above-ground pests, but the tradition and the real quality needs just mean that it hasn't been practical to use breeding as a way to tap into the wild side of grapes. Now, wine grapes aren't the only crop that could use a genetic upgrade from wild relatives for the part above the ground. Olives, citrus, coffee, bananas, and the cacao from which we get chocolate could all theoretically benefit from nature's storehouse of genetic diversity, but we can't or haven't very often been able to make any practical use of that. There is, however, a recent example of how modern biotechnology is letting us have sort of the best of both worlds for improving these hard-to-breed crops. Now, as I mentioned before, potatoes in the wild and in agriculture normally start each new generation with a genetically identical sprout from a tuber. But potatoes occasionally make a fruit and a seed. But breeding potatoes that way is slow and it's really mostly only practical in terms of making crosses between two already fairly commercially acceptable cultivars. 
And wild potatoes definitely still exist in the Andes Mountains of South America where potatoes originated, but in many cases those wild potatoes are completely inedible and otherwise unsuitable for farming. Well, some scientists at the Sainsbury Lab in the UK working with scientists at the US company Simplot Plant Sciences moved some very important disease resistance genes from wild potatoes into important commercial lines. This is an example of modern genetic engineering, and because it involves moving a potato gene into a potato, it's called cisgenic as opposed to transgenic. Now, those potatoes have gone through a long and detailed regulatory process in the U.S. and Canada and have recently been approved for use, and they're going to be known as second-generation innate potatoes. This is really an important milestone because it not only helps with this particular big issue for potato growers, it demonstrates a method through which many other crops could get this sort of useful walk on the wild side and still have all the other important characteristics we want and need. The resistance from the wild potatoes is to a disease called late blight. On a previous podcast titled Plants Get Sick Too, I talked about that dramatic historical disease called late blight that devastated potato crops that had become extremely important in Europe by the mid-1800s. And since then, for more than a century, it's really only been possible to grow potatoes because there are fungicides to protect the crop from late blight. Now, the fungicide options available to farmers have become much safer and more effective over time, but the best possible strategy is to combine this new genetic resistant from the wild potatoes with those fungicides. An integrated system makes it far less likely that the pathogen will someday find a way around either the genetics or the chemical. Now, it takes a lot of time and money to do either the genetic engineering or the new fungicide discovery process. So the potato growers will be best served by a combination approach that has the best chance of preserving all of their tools. Also, based on this precedent, will other farmers around the world that grow hard-to-breed crops get a similar chance to benefit from the genetic diversity that exists in the wild? I hope so. You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.